Hello and welcome to episode 349 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Caracino. And we're coming to you in separate locations today. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. It's the Shaquem Griffin edition. <laughs> you said earlier we weren't going to say what else this episode was. And we we're going to continue to not say that, even though we didn't mention last week that it was that's the it. Super Bowl 48 episode. It's the Shaquem Griffin edition, and that's it. Feel good right. story. Well, before we get to our choice this week. We, we need to discuss something that we'll get into further down the road on the appropriate podcast. But that's right. If you saw it on Twitter or Instagram today, Tuckin' Taco Time was featured in Seattle Met Magazine in a story about Taco Time Northwest and how important a signifier it is or a differentiator, I guess, between people who grew up in Seattle and those who did not. Uh yeah, it was kind of incredible to be in Seattle Met talking about taco time, of all things. Uh, it was great. Every part of it was awesome. The it's caricature was awesome? I was I was building to that. Okay. Except for the heinous caricature. I'm sorry, <laughs> Seattle Met. That is not what I look like. I feel like or you, you, or Randy, and it is kind of what Chris looks like. <laughs> it's very close to Chris. I, everyone agrees on that point. I think Randy got it worst. Quite clearly, in my opinion, I really looked around at each of those photos for kind of a long time to be like, "Who is who here?" Someone, uh, I think it was fifth talking Taco Time co-host Nate Taggart messaged me like, "I I posted and he replied something and I was like, yeah, Randy got it worst.'" And he was like, "Which one is Randy?" <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, I really like. I stared and I was like, "Okay, yeah, that that's me." They gave me tattoos though, which I kind of liked. They beat me to it. <laughs> I'm unclear what your tattoos were of. I not Taco Time, just kind of a scribble. Yeah. Well, yeah. we have not yet had anyone on Talking Taco Time with a Taco Time Northwest tattoo. That's going to happen someday, I think. I think it might be one of the co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also someone in the Superfans commercial with one. So okay. Uh, anyway, stay tuned down the road for a special Talking Taco Time episode delving more deeply into that appearance. And how that story came to be. My favorite part of the story was that it mentioned, it tied in, it's all full circle here, right? It tied in, and it said, we were sitting around eating what? I don't Eating donuts. donuts. yes. That's yes, right. Predating the Pelton Cast donut search, which is in motion. We will get to it in a little bit, which will commence at Pelton Cast no, Live. No, no, no. Commence last week. It will conclude. At Feldencast Live. I believe commence means both start and finish. I guess there is commencement. I, that's fair, but... It's a ceremony think... in which degrees or diplomas are conferred on Seattle's best donut. Okay. We'll see what the <laughs> listener has to say on that one. <laughs> that's my English major. University of Washington, baby. <laughs> Class of 07, am I right? I mean, they, they don't necessarily <laughs> teach, teach you word definitions in... <laughs> College level English. Uh, Pelncast Live, April 21st, where we will crown the winner of Seattle's best donut at Belltown Yacht Club. We are back there. It is an 
awesome time. You know what to expect from Pelton Cast Live. Anybody who's ever been to a Pelton Cast Live comes back to every single Pelton Cast Live because it's the most fun. Uh, not mathematically thing. accurate. Scientifically true. Exponentially larger fan, fan base every single time. Also, something else they did not teach you in those English classes. <laughs> we are going to have, fingers crossed, fingers crossed this happens, the first ever edition of Talkin' Taco Time Live with all four of what? your Talkin' Taco Time co-hosts. Just no need to advertise that until we know it's happening. We've already talked about it on here. Look, Randy's coming. Randy's coming. You'll be able so. to see in person that we don't really look like the caricatures except for Chris, <laughs> so you'll be like, oh, I recognize you from the caricature. <laughs> We're definitely going to project that on the screen during, no! during oh, the segment. Oh, you had me put up a photo of me as a clown last year during the oh. podcast for, for the content. I stand by it. Uh <laughs> We're also going to have, if you didn't know, this is the week right before the NFL draft. And the Seahawks, I heard, have two first-round picks. And we're going to have NFL draft guru from the ringer, Danny Kelly, returning to his second-ever Pelton cast live. We're going to have so much fun with him. There'll be more surprises, more guests beyond that. It is going to be an incredible night. Tickets are on sale now. 100% of profits. Not net profits. 100% of gross profits uh, will be benefiting. Do we decide what it's benefiting? We have not firmly decided yet. Okay. We'd be benefiting something. and <laughs> But also, I don't know about your, your definition of net versus gross here either. <laughs> Just proceeds. Just go with proceeds. And we're going to have brand new Pelton Cast merch or Talking Taco Time merch. Brand new merch for this event, which will be unveiled. It'll be available for the first time. At that event, April 21st, Pelton Cast Live. You'll put the ticket link in the uh, uh, show notes. It is there. Yeah, we just got to get it back out on social again. All right, should we get into this week's beer? Absolutely. So it's a little late for Lunar New Year celebrations, but I did go to a Lunar New Year party just last weekend and uh, picked up, it was unrelated to the party, but uh, uh, have picked up this week from our friends at Lucky Envelope Brewing in collaboration with Highland Brewing in North Carolina. Wow. Near a state you want to be alone in. Uh, it is the Water Rabbit Yuzu Pilsner as part of their Lunar New Year series, uh, celebrating a happy year of the Water Rabbit from Lucky Envelope and Highland Brewing. This refreshing West Coast Pilsner featuring real Yuzu citrus fruit marks our fourth annual Zodiac Beer collaboration. Cheers to the New Year with this traditional all-malt American Pilsner brought, brewed with noble hops and dry hopped with citra in mosaic. Damn. And I, I did not... We're not in person for this one. That's a beer that I would like to drink. I know. It's very exciting. Uh, I didn't realize this, that Lucky Envelope Brewing, the name of it, referred to the red envelopes that are traditionally given out at Lunar New Year. Ooh. So that's the, the there's definitely a strong connection here, connection here and uh, uh, a passion for Chinese-American culture from the uh, Chinese-American heritage from their uh, longtime friends, Ray Kwan and Barry Chan, who fanned it, Lucky All Envelope right. Brewing. So, excited to try this. All right, we start this week with uh, a toast to the storm announcing that they will be retiring Sue Bird's jersey wow. June 11th at their game they got into against that the fast. Washington Mystics. <laughs> yes, they're not they're not waiting as long as the Mariners did with Felix, even though his his jersey technically isn't being retired. I don't think he's going in the Mariners Hall of Fame is their version, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is probably going to be one of the uh, better attended games of the season, certainly. We will talk about that later. It either will or it won't be. 
Oh, I think either way it will be. <laughs> no, no. I'm saying, like, it, it will be one of the better attended games. But the rest of the games might be very well attended, or they might not be, depending <laughs> on what happens very soon. It's very all or nothing right now, it seems like, in WNBA free agency. And yes, more on that to come. We'll see whether Brianna Stewart will be at the Super Jersey retirement or not. <laughs> well, she's ruled out the Mystics, so. Yes, she will not be on the other side. That's true. All right, congrats next to the uh, Seahawks Award finalists announced last Wednesday by the NFL. Geno Smith, a finalist for Comeback Player of the Year, Ken Walker III for Offensive Rookie of the Year, and Tariq Woolen for Defensive Rookie of the Year. Those winners will be announced at the NFL Honors Show on February 9th during the week of the Super Bowl. Very cool. Do we consider Geno Smith to be the favorite for Comeback Player of the Year? I think so, and part of the reason we do. As big things, congrats to Gino, who has voted both Comeback Player of the Year and Most Improved Player there by the go. Pro Football Writers Association. Those feel like they're kind of contradictory to me, but they, they both apply in different ways to Gino Smith's season. I mean, Ooh, what comeback... Nice. Oh, I hate you. What Comeback Player of the Year means is you weren't, bad, you weren't good before, but now you are. Like, that's really what it means. But no, I don't think that usually is what it means. Usually it's players coming off of injury. In this case, Geno Smith was coming off of being a backup for so long, not <laughs> getting like an it. opportunity to play. It's, it is a little un- unusual. They're going to have to rename it the Geno Smith Award. Let's go. Uh, next up, congrats to UW Indoor Track, which reached number oh one God. in the NCAA rankings for the first time in school history history after a historic performance in the Husky Invitational on Friday is brought to our attention by the listener, Mike Bate. Eight UW runners, including one Sam Ellis, who is technically unaffiliated for this race because he has outdoor track eligibility remaining, but not indoor track eligibility, beat a four-minute mile last Friday at the Dempsey Center, led by Joe Waskin, whose time of 351.9 is the third fastest in NCAA indoor history. Although results of the Dempsey Center are not technically qualified for NCAA records because the track is oversized, but still the fastest in the world this year run indoors in terms of a mile. The top four finishers for the Huskies, all the fastest in the NCAA yet Let's this fucking go! UW is an indoor track school now. We have right? no idea, but we are. How? Where were these dudes? Like, that? these are incredible times to have so many runners. I saw that and I was like, what happened? I mean, how did it happen that every fast motherfucker in the entire world goes to UW? <laughs> it's Not a great question. The in the entire country goes to UW, right? These are incredible. The four minute mile is just nothing anymore, right? It, it has not been the barrier for a long period of time, but uh, it seems like time indoor times in college track are decreasing pretty rapidly. Like, what was the record a few years ago? Now, like, all of these guys beat that, basically. Wow. Not, not quite all of them, but at least, I think, four or five of these runners. Uh, Larry Stone had a good article in the Seattle Times that kind of fleshed out a few more of the details on this one. So that was that was good to say. Has, has UW been actively targeting indoor track runners, or what happened? I mean, I don't know that the recruiting game in indoor track is necessarily the same as it is in uh, more revenue sports. But uh, part of what's changed is a new coach for the UW track program uh, that is Andy Powell, who uh, came to UW from Oregon. So oh. there you go. <laughs> Oregon's not known for running at all. Am <laughs> I, I right? I know. Damn. <laughs> 
So I just, for me personally, UW is a school. When I think of running, I think of the <laughs> University of Washington, not Oregon. Wow, that feels even better. Let's I know. go. I know. <laughs> So I will have to continue to follow the UW indoor track season. I'm not sure they're going to make the rundown, but certainly there, hopefully there will be some more toast to them. Uh, yeah. So, and I would say that right now, I would say that Andy Powell seems like the Ryan Grubb of indoor track. There, there we go. No, he's like, you're giving Ryan Grubb that much credit, not Kalen DeBoer. Everybody I, needs to cool I'm off. Giving you a lot of cool DeBoer off credit, but we'll talk that. about later in the pod about okay. the, uh, the excitement about Ryan the, Grubb. The Ryan Grubb. Okay whatever i just all right i'm this is the best news all year <laughs> when he, when i heard that he came from oregon it was like yeah having the eight fastest runners in the fucking country is great sure, sure. but when the coach comes from oregon a school that is not connected to running in any way at all that's the thing it's just like, it's I, like again you're... synonymous <laughs> in my brain running university of washington those two things let's make a movie about it let's make two <laughs> Oh, uh, it's like if you'd have men's basketball and hired Tommy Lloyd and enjoyed the same success that Arizona is currently enjoying. That did not happen. <laughs> it did not. It did not. We'll talk more about Arizona's success also later but in the But it's pod. not like Gonzaga is like specifically known for, I mean, they are known for basketball, yeah, I think they, but they not for like They're decades not, before yes, this or whatever. Not years tradition. Yeah. 50 years tradition down the drain. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how good Oregon actually is at indoor track. I did not look up the full Cl- rankings. Oh, do they have a time faster than the third fastest time ever? Uh, 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 plausibly, but probably not. All right, lastly, before we get into Oregon. our search for Seattle's best donuts, we need to circle back on the Pelton geography from last week. Oh, come on. We got an email from the listener, Sean Lindemeyer, who said, going to have to quibble with your definition of South Sound. As the South Sound listener, there is no way the region extends north of JBLM. It encompasses Thurston and potentially Mason County, but definitely not Pierce. So I decided to look this up. And according to the Puget Sound Institute, their definition of the South Sound is all the waters south of the Tacoma Narrows, which would count Spanaway, for the record, <laughs> which is what we were talking about in South Seattle. It's not South Seattle by any definition, by any understanding of the term. But, and here's the fun latitude game. Oh, my Spanaway God. Spanaway is almost exactly the same latitude as Olympia. It just seems very different because I-5 goes so far west around the bottom of Puget Sound instead of going. So you're going on I-5 south. I see what you're But you're saying. actually, I'm sorry, it goes, it goes. Well, I guess it depends which direction you're going, but uh, you're you're go when you travel south down I five, you are traveling west towards the coast. And primarily. we sort of imagine like all of when you go down I five, you're just like in your head, it's a straight line. Yes, and Olympia seems like wow, it must be way far south of Tacoma, and it's not that far south, but because it curves around, that's kind of interesting. Actually, but Spanaway is also south of Tacoma proper, so. JBLM is close to the Narrows. That's that's a decent definition. I mean, there are like publications called the South Sound, like South Sound Magazine is headquartered in Tacoma. I hey, think South Sound P- Magazine. There's Taco Times down there also, and we are available. <laughs> Very available. <laughs> Just run your caricature by us first. <laughs> yeah, God damn it. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. Think about that uh, one next time. I was, Span away I was, in, in Olympia. 
both I was north joking. of Montreal. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's all that matters. We're all in the we're all in the north here. Uh, yeah, there is no South Sound here. I was joking with my coworker about calling it South Seattle, and I'm probably going to go to this event at Heidelberg Brewery, uh, where they're they're putting Heidelberg on draft for the first time since who knows how long. Seven nice. Seas is happening. It's at Seven Seas Brewery in Tacoma, where we went. One dollar Smash Burgers. I think forty nine cent Heidelberg's on draft. Uh, that's February first tomorrow night, and I was joking about going down there with all these Tacoma dudes or whatever, and calling it South Seattle, <laughs> getting on the mic. Being like Seven Seas is South Seattle's best brewery. In, in what scenario you're getting on a microphone at this event? That, just I was joking about because <laughs> it would infuriate the people of Tacoma so much. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely would. Uh, that I I will I will formally apologize to. I didn't I didn't know where Mike Blowers was from, <laughs> but, but I said it, and then you continued to call it South Seattle. No, I'd I already dug it. <laughs> I did later refer to Kentwood as plausibly being in South Sound because they are in the South Puget Sound League. I, I'm going to take that issue up with the South Puget Sound League. Kentwood has to be considered South King County, but not, not South Sound. Oh my Sound. God. It's South Seattle. No, it's definitely not that either. Again, South it's Seattle rigid about these definitions. is the part of Seattle that is in the South part of Seattle. <laughs> That's how it works. All right. Speaking of the listener emails. <laughs> Constant. <laughs> Third Fulton brother Zach Javal sent us an email about uh, the donut section, which he referred to as his longest email yet. I, I haven't <laughs> reviewed the word count, but it seems plausible. Uh, here's what he writes. I realized early into the donut discussion on this week's podcast that I was going to have to comment. So here are my live <laughs> notes as I listen. It was harrowing. Harrowing? Harrowing. 1445 minute mark. After a truly incredible display of Pelton cast geography, Kevin apparently confusing Belltown and Queen Anne is no notes. Tristan confidently asserts that the monorail runs on 2nd Avenue. Only missed it by three. It's on 5th Avenue. Did I say 2nd Avenue? I, I, I mean, I have no reason to doubt Zach Jabal on that one. All right. I'm sure. 1545. Fond memories of my long... By the way, technically that location is referred to by Top Pot as being in downtown. Neither Queen Anne nor Belltown. So that's what I'm going with from here on out. It's, 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 a, a, it's close to Belltown. It's like a, you know, it's kind of in-between stuff. Okay. 1545. Fond memories of my long-lost fantasy football team, Golden Tate's 3 a.m. snack. Oh, wow. There we go. 17 minutes. Amen to the notion that putting goofy shit on a donut is somehow good or worth celebrating. Can't, I can't agree with that. 1750. Tristan, I want to subscribe to your donut remixing newsletter. I, <laughs> I don't even that, remember what that was. What like. that was. 1845. I, I will say I googled on Google Maps what is considered, well, it might, there's like a boundary that they call Belltown. And it goes up to 6th Avenue, but it cuts down to 5th Avenue. I, I have to find out where. Anyway, you keep talking. I will find out where the top pot is within here. It's really Maybe close. it follows the, does it follow the monorail then? Because the monorail is on 6th before it goes over to 5th, right? Am I remembering that correctly? That uh, we're too much risk of Pelton Cast Geography. We need to move <laughs> on. 1825. Phenomenal display of the low level of donut expertise on hand is Tristan apparently believes that filled donuts are baked with the cream filling inside no, them. I know that they're not. No filled after they're baked and I cool. knew that that was going to be something that was going to come up. But it still gets the, the donut around it 
still gets soft hold on, hold on. Okay, whatever. First of all, filling them before baking would be absolutely impossible because how do you fill a thing that is just dough? And also, it would totally ruin the texture and flavor of the filling. Now, wait a second. What about lava cake? Isn't lava cake something that's filled while it's died? Again, we're at risk of... I know that lava cake is supposed to be melted as it's being cooked. I know that much. I do not choose to comment on lava cake. <laughs> it's also... too risky to comment on lava cake. <laughs> Also, it totally ruined the texture and flavor of the filling. The softness in the middle is because the filling is softening the donut. Yes, I agree with that. 2305. Love the idea that Kevin has no idea what goes into a yeasted donut. A food with like four ingredients total. <laughs> I, I got I to gotta copy per, this one. Per Google Maps, the Top Pot Donuts is in Belltown. Okay. They call it downtown. They're wrong. 2540. Incredible tasting note from Kevin. Fallback about the, uh, that's about the uh, balsamic in the dough joint. Fallback career as a wine taster. If the whole basketball stats thing doesn't work out. <laughs> 28 minutes. Can we turn Tristan's starry-eyed optimism into a donut flavor? 28.55. Tristan's doctor ups the Lipitor dose yet again. Ups the what? Lipitor dose. <laughs> 3145, pretty sure the backlash against voodoo in Portland and elsewhere is less about the lines and more about hype gimmickry not matching reality. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the same. The reason there's lines is because there's hype. So, and it's, if it was worth waiting in line for like, you know, screen door back in the day or, or various brunch spots, that would be different than if it isn't. 3245. <laughs> I don't know enough going. about it to elaborate, but I've heard conversations about it. Since when has this ever stopped Tristan before? 34 minutes. Remembering now Tristan's rapturous comments about the donuts beignets, really, at Dahlia Lounge, and still available at Lola, I believe, and wondering if this subgenre, beignets, uh, a billion other names, will get covered. I don't know. I Because there's not like a beignet specific place anymore and i feel like places something place like lola it falls under our rules like seattle's best burger couldn't have been at you know some fancy a steakhouse that has a burger on the menu that was our rule right yeah i i feel like if there was a beignet shop that we should include that there right? used to be one in white center but i do not believe it is there anymore they are good beignets obviously i mean i a beignet, beignet falls under donuts, correct? Right? I let's just let's see where this where the search takes us. We're going to continue establishing a donut taxonomy as we go. One thing I was wondering about, by the way, and I don't think it does actually form a taxonomy, the choice of whether to use in your name as a company, D O N U T or D O U G H N U T. Where do you, where do you stand on this? I feel like I, I I probably am not consistent in my usage. I'm if I'm, I'm being a, honest. I I'm a D O U G H every single time. I see that seems like more uh, pretentious. The, yes, got it. Well, no, to do our cloth napkin versus paper napkin taxonomy, it seems more cloth napkiny to me. But I don't know that that actually matches up with the way that the it's actually used in practice. It just feels more pretentious. All right. I mean, I don't, I don't know when the word changed, but I feel like the initial word was D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T and somebody, it got abbreviated over time. But like the original name is Donuts. 
Probably. That's uh, an area for further research. All right, wrapping up with Zach. <laughs> further research? Two overarching thoughts. The first is that the conversation around the change in food culture in the U.S. is a fascinating one, but I also think that donuts are a particularly good illustration of how this trend has been at best a mixed blessing. In many ways, it's like what happened to coffee previously. The success of the second and in particular third wave of the coffee movement was in convincing a huge swath of Americans and later the world that it made perfect sense to start paying five times what they had paid for coffee a few years previous. Yes, some of that money in some cases went to better compensate farmers and workers in the places where coffee has grown, but uh, not most of it. We've gone from a world where perfectly good donuts might cost you less than a dollar to one where General Porpoise, perhaps the most egregious offender, is out here charging $5.50 for like 41 cents of ingredients. The other one is that one of the fundamental appeals of the cake donut is that it's vastly superior to raised donuts for consuming with slash dunking in coffee. Not sure that it's come up much on, much on the Pelton cast that I've heard, but I get the sense that neither of you are coffee drinkers, which um, might explain why your donut preferences are what they are. I'm a rabid coffee drinker, but... But you don't dunk donuts in coffee, do you? Not really, no. Yeah. And I do not drink coffee at all. So I think that actually does make that a lot of sense. That sounds good, though. I'm, 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 well, I've, dun I've dunked donuts in coffee before, obviously. But, like, it's an argument. No, it... It's a completely sensible ex explanation for why he was my saying taste that about cake be... donuts. Hmm? Cake donuts—they're good yes. for dunking in coffee. Yeah, it, it makes sense why my taste would be different than someone who's eating donuts with coffee would be. Yeah, hard to agree. Also, who's the person who tweeted about? It was a Christopher Wheeler who mentioned that he was upset about the idea of describing something as good as wet bread. I think there was broad consensus on being uncomfortable with the phrase wet bread. I didn't say wet bread. <laughs> I did said, you not? I said the gooey part where the filling meets the dough. That's okay. the best part of a filled donut. But you said previously there, there's like a general arch overarching, like you like a very soft bun, for example. Of course. Roll. That's not but wet what did you bread. How did you describe it? I don't know. Right. Not wet, but also when you're talking about wet, like literally a donut, a, a cake donut dunked in coffee is wet bread, and it's fucking delicious. It's well, not the is, same as like point. you're on your uncle's boat in 1998 and your Subway sandwich gets in the water and your mom tells you to eat it still. Like, that is the most <laughs> disgusting thing on the face of the earth. <laughs> wet bread is disgusting. Yes, it was horrible. I still remember to this day. I think I dropped it into American Lake. Um, <clears throat> or whatever, the Columbia River, who knows. But... Down in South Seattle at American Lake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second there. Uh, it, it's it's about, I like, like, the right amount of cooked uh, for bread. I like things, so when bread gets way overcooked, it's not as good. Unless it's something that's intentionally supposed to be. But the perfect foods are a, a little bit crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside. All right. Well, now, with that preamble, let's was get there, to this was week's... There, was there more or is that it? That was it. Oh, I love it. Let's get to this week's locations. Uh, oh, actually, I did want have one other note following up on the Donuts 2.0 conversation. The second wave and third wave of coffee that Zach mentioned is also a good analogy here. 2002, I discovered this, I think, after we recorded. Seems like a key year in the donut evolution. Not only was that when Krispy Kreme first arrived here, it was also when Dunkin' Donuts left the state of Washington and the same year that Top Pot opened. So definitely a confluence in the changing of the guard and donuts around that time. Uh, but Mighty O actually predates 
my donuts 2.0 cutoff that to be one of the locations we're reviewing this week they begin selling mini donuts at the u district street fair in 2000 before wow. opening up their first retail location in 2003 they'll have five of them in ballard green lake south lake union downtown and capitol hill they describe themselves as seattle's first plant-based organic donut with mixes and glazes made from scratch one big difference from Dojoy, as we talked about last week, is they do use nuts, so not the same degree of allergen friendliness as Dojoy enjoys. Uh, and to quote from their website, going back to our conversation last week about how many donuts to make, is a sustainably-minded bakery, no donuts are thrown away. Instead, we donate our extra donuts to nonprofit organizations and compost all food waste. Great. Love that. I, I think that the general consensus was agreeing with me about the donut timing. Like, I just don't. Sometimes you're going to show up for donuts, even if it's the morning. Sometimes shit goes early. Like, you're going to be like, just, oh, f- have flower box isn't isn't good because you might. Their donuts are hard to get because of how good they are. What do you want like, flower yeah. box to make 10,000 donuts? You want fucking difference. Amazon for donuts over here? There's a difference between places where you order ahead for donuts and places where you go into the shop and you know, choose from what they have available. That's a wildly different thing. So don't conflate those two things. They are not alike. I'm just saying. You and again, this is never an experience that I've ever had in my life in Seattle where I've like gone into a, a donut shop looking for a particular donut. It has not been there. It has you never happened to me in Seattle. literally never once have done it? Never. It happened at the Mightyo. They didn't have the French toast donut. Oh, you understand? Right. They didn't have the French toast. It happened to you this weekend. I didn't know that I wanted it though. And they still had a wide variety of different things. But I'm saying you literally need to have two choices. My first choice, if I would have gone to that Mighty would have been the French Toast Donut. And I got a second choice. And you know what? I'm not holding that against Mighty I'm not like, well, this is a good location. They'd have every donut that I want. Come on. Anyway. Are we starting with Mighty Yeah, we are starting with them. <laughs> okay. Uh, there was definitely a time period... When I, this was Tristan version 1.0, uh, <clears throat> before the revolution, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> the donut revolution happened. No, it wasn't that long ago. But I would say in like 2015, no, I was still at the Vera Project. 2011, 12, somewhere around there. I was eating a lot of Mighty O Donuts for whatever reason. I think I was probably around more vegan people or something um, that I have at my home office. And... I, there was a time that I thought that Mighty O was the best donut in Seattle. I was pretty confident about it. But my knowledge of, I think there are a lot more donuts in Seattle since then. And, you know, I wasn't doing an official search for Seattle's best donut with like 40 donut locations on it. Now I look around at this list and I'm like, damn, there are some hitters coming up, right? This is a competitive search. And I feel like it's kind of hard to even, you know, we have the ones circled that are going to be the favorites, but there's like 10 of them. It is going to be a fierce bracket when we get there. And there are going to be some hard choices that are going to have to be made. But going back to my DO for the first time, and I mean, it had been years, four or five years since I had my DO. Uh, I think the thing that I point out to you is to me, their best donuts, they, the most of their donuts are cake donuts. And yes. I think their best donuts are cake donuts. And that, so what I got was a chocolate bar. I can't remember what they called it. Like a chocolate bar, uh, sort of like a you know maple bar style and an orange blossom cake donut and to me the orange blossom cake donut was definitely the winner of those two i do think it's interesting how the comparison between dojoy which is similar in, in the types of ingredients that they use right 
or being totally vegan in what they're doing. And Mightyo, which for Mightyo, not in a bad way necessarily, but their maple bar didn't taste like a top hot maple bar. You know, like it really wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been in the same conversation with each other. Whereas for Dojoy, it's at the same level and probably better, in my opinion. So it's definitely a slightly different thing. By the way, to re-rate Dojoy a little bit, you went back last week and oh, brought wow. me I heard about this. one of their Bavarian cream donuts. And I think that might have been better than the Top Pot wow. Boston cream that I had well, from Top Pot the previous week. We're going to rank the four today. So you can re-rank them if you want to re-rank. It's, it's very tight between them. We're also uh, not necessarily going to rank all four. Okay, wow. Uh, but for me, ultimately, I thought that the Orange Blossom, and to me, for a cake donut, I think it is absolutely, it's very, very high up there. Um, I had an excellent experience with it overall. I love my DO. It just, it was it was a hair behind, I think, the other two locations that we'd been to beforehand. I think that's pretty much the same place that I'm in. So I had the Nutty French Toast, since they were out of the French Toast, and you recommended that. And you had a and, cake donut. Yes. And it was a good cake donut, right? Yeah, I mean, look, again, the point is not that cake donuts are inedible. The point is, any place I go to get cake donuts almost always is going to also have the option of some sort of raised donut, and I'm going to choose that instead because that tends to be my preference. I like my donuts on the airy side. And I thought it was interesting, so I also had one of their filled donuts, which I believe was filled with uh, hot chocolate, was their seasonal flavor. And the filling was awesome, but it was interesting that I felt like the dough was a little heavier than yes. a typical filled donut. This was the same with the chocolate bar. Just a little bit heavier. It's not quite as airy, you mentioned. So, again, very good. I would agree that it's a little bit behind those other two locations that we did last week. And now, the other thing is now, like, we're also judging Dojoy. I, I don't think it's... I don't think it's necessarily fair because we're talking about donuts here, right? To say that by being vegan, it should get extra credit or something like that. I think we have to judge these purely based on taste alone, right? And, you know, also knowing that there's another vegan location, which to me is at the top of the list. Like, I, 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 think, I think we should judge all of these locations as the taste as they are, right? It shouldn't be the I mean, taste relative to having milk or eggs. Yeah, I think the organic element can certainly be something. But, you know, to go back to my ignorance about how donuts are made, if you didn't, I, like, I didn't know previously that Mighty O was plant-based. I had no idea. I just went there. They had donuts. They were good. And, like, I, you can't, like, tell, like, oh, my God, there's <laughs> this, there's no eggs in this? What's wrong with yes. it? Like, it's not like that. The The best items are a thing, but that's not their thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Like, or they're not. That's the other thing. It's like, it's not like the best restaurants in the world. I mean, they're very, very good re vegan restaurants, but like things should still be ranked in terms of how fucking good they are. Right. Yeah. I, I generally think so. All right. So let's talk about general porpoise because I think it falls into a different donut taxonomy that we're going to run into taxonomy. throughout this search. So it opened in 2015 in Capitol Hill, not far from Mighty L from Chef Renee Erickson and the team behind Eat Sea Creatures group, which also include, runs the Walrus and the Carpenter, Westward, Bateau, among many others that uh, Renee Erickson is behind as chef. For the Seattle Met, coming up again, <laughs> the donuts that they serve, and they are exclusive, it's just one type of donut, 
with different fillings are inspired by the donuts from the St. John Bakery in London associated with the Michelin-starred St. John restaurant. I would classify them in the Malasada family, speaking of the Hawaiian version of the Malasada, because they're all filled with a sugar-covered exterior. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Uh, According to their website, donuts at General Porpoise are made with fresh eggs and filled with seasonal jams, jellies, curds, custards, and creams. So I think I, what what did you get me? I think I had a chocolate cream. Yeah, it was something like that. I have the photo that I can read the exact name of it. Um, so, I I pref- I like the idea of a donut place that only does one thing. I don't I don't think you need to have that much variety because to me, if you do something great, then you don't need to have a million different items. 100% you had a agreed. chocolate marshmallow, oh, so they yes. had they had for this weekend vanilla custard, lemon curd, chocolate marshmallow, fruity di bosco, and pistachio cannoli, five fifty a piece. As we heard, and and I wouldn't say I. Top pot is a little bit closer to, the, they're still expensive vis a vis. Like donuts that you would get in the early two thousands or whatever, and I do think that's a trend that Zach Ball is talking about, where it's taking food that was once considered cheap food and all of a sudden not changing it that much necessarily, but making it expensive food. I mean. That's like so much of modern American cuisine is, you know, or look at the searches. Like a lot of these searches are for things that cultures adopted because of the fact that they were relatively easy and quick yes. to, and yeah. cheap we're to like, do. I and feel like we, we specifically like, are choosing those things. Well, because of the fact that we're not necessarily searching for Seattle's best French restaurant. Uh-huh. Like that's not really our style. But that is like, yes, what the mid-tier food is in the U.S. now. Uh, but so, I I would think it's fair to say that General Porpoise is a little bit more of uh, what acclaim does Renee Erickson have? Um, she is James Beard winner, correct? Yeah. Okay. So, like, it it is on the more acclaimed side of a restaurant of a donut restaurant from probably sure. any of the chefs that we'll talk to. Right? There's it's owned by a James Beard winner. And I think that's sort of the donuts are obviously very good, but that's also part of what you're paying for, right? The Rene Erickson restaurants are not cheap restaurants, uh, and I like that they've honed in on this is what we make. We're not doing a bunch of different things. There's nothing on the menu that you could look at and be like, "Well, that sucks," right? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's small, but it's pretty much always packed. It was interesting to compare it because so far we haven't done any donuts that are in that like Malasada style that you're describing it as, right? But we are going to have several others. And it feels like, again, the Donuts 3.0 has leaned very heavily towards that style. Oh, yes. Yes. No, I I think you could find some sort of divide recently, especially the home donuts that we're going to do. Multiple of those are in that style, right? But for this one, it really comes down to how, how is the donut cooked, right? Is it is it a little bit, is there, not a crunch, but do you have to bite down, right? It was sort of like when we had the conversation with uh, the person about ribs, right? If it's yes. too fall off the bone, that's not right. You want to have to tug a little tiny bit, right? You don't want it to be, you don't have to gnaw at it, but you want to tug just a little bit. You want a little bit of a bite down on the outside and on the inside it has to taste good, the filling. And 
again, the thing for me where it's like, is it all bread and then all custard on the inside? Or like, do, do those two things feel like totally separate entities in the middle? Because I think that's wrong. But at some place, at some point, they should sort of conjoin together, like Zach was describing, that the custard being shot into it or whatever it is, is <laughs> it makes. No, I'm saying whatever the item is, whether it's custard. Whatever the filling but, is. Yes. Whatever this process is. <laughs> Uh, I've seen probably 5,000 TikTok videos about how, how these donuts are made. There was, um, there was Jordan McKay, by the way, who was our barbecue expert. Yes, back Jordan in, McKay. Back last summer, early in our search for Seattle's best barbecue. That's ongoing. <laughs> Still forever. Uh, but I think it was, I thought it was a perfect description of ribs. And for me, that's how, how a donut like this should be made. And so I had the first one that I had, it was the Fruity Di Bosco, which I, I, I ate that one. And I was like, this is good. Everything about it is good. But I still prefer, again, the most similar we've had have been the filled Bavarian cream from Dojoy and from Top Pot. And I was like, I liked both of those more than I liked the Fruity Di Bosco. And then a day later, I ended up getting insanely sick for a day. So I couldn't eat the second donut. Unrelated. (laughs) No, unrelated. I had a migraine, whatever. Uh, The second, the day after, I had, I got one of the vanilla custard ones. And that one, a day later, I was like, oh, shit. So I, I think that the, the custard worked a little bit better than the, the fruit jam in the in that particular donut. And I do have to say, initially, I was like, I think General Porpoise, despite the fact that I fucking love these donuts, I'm obsessed with them. I thought it was a little bit behind Top Pot uh, at first. And then after eating that vanilla custard donut, I was like, I think this it's it is very, very close with Top Pot. So my sense is, I think that when we put together a bracket, we should have a an exclusively filled donut side, and we should have a donut donut generalist side of the bracket. Those are, those should be the different regions. It remains to be seen if there we need to have any other regions in our taxonomy. But that's how I'm viewing things. That we're going to kind of rate them separately. How well, how do we do restaurants if like a top pot? Like, are we rating, is there Bavarian cream in there? Or are we just like, that's what they do? But they're a generalist because I can go there and get multiple different styles of donuts. Whereas you think we're if gonna, I go... How many donut places are going to be in the bracket? I mean, I'm saying that there's like maybe the top two in each of these categories. Okay. Is what I'm imagining. And then the therefore we, we don't have two of the same category going up against each other because they are kind of different stylistically. Okay. I mean, again, we have plenty of time. We'll learn a lot about donuts over this process. We'll continue to understand better how they are actually made. But that's how I'm viewing things. So I'm going to grade it separately, I would say. Okay. What, what, was, what did you think about it? I, I think I'm similar to your reaction on the first day. You know, you, you talk about the price point. The donuts are kind of small. The filling wasn't necessarily like an overwhelming amount of it, I would say. Okay. So the you know the bites where you're not getting filling or by definition not as good as the bites where you're getting filling, even though you're still eating a sugar donut, like it's not bad. Again, no no donut is bad. It's just not quite as good a bite. So that that's kind of the things I'm going to be evaluating in the filled donut category in particular. Okay. I mean, you, I think you do have to also say, is it like the price point is higher than any donut we've had so far? Yeah. That definitely th- is going to factor in. I think it has to be that much better than those other donuts, four or five fifty. They're excellent donuts. 
but we could just we could just be like right now is it in the bracket or is it out and to me it is in the bracket confidently in but the we'll bracket Wolf. Because... out of four <laughs> yeah we've only done four uh this week we are intending to do ninth and hennepin which was the aforementioned donuts that we were eating during the uh the talking taco time interview as well as why am i blanking on the name of the donut? legendary donuts Oh, that's that's what we're gonna do as well. Okay. Yeah, has Zach Great. judged a, a bracket for us? He is not. Oh, it's time. <laughs> you want him to come up and talk shit about us on stage at the live chat? Oh, I, I not necessarily at the. I if if oh, if okay. Zach Within Whitman the... is the desider, then Zach Whitman should be there. But if I'm thinking, we might have a larger panel than three this time. Okay. <laughs> so that's uh, something fair... I'm toying with. Fair enough. Well, then, I mean, maybe there as well, but we need to get Zach in as judging one of the previous rounds. Yeah, I can't remember if he has or not off the top. I, I know he's been on the pod, but I forget whether it was to, to judge something or not. So, uh, quickly, as we move on to our Seattle food update, part of the reason that uh, I want to have you come out to the coast here to West Seattle is so that you can enjoy the preview of Little Woody's Seattle Burger Month, which is coming next week. Per tradition, they are bringing back last year's most popular option, the K-Squared FC Korean Fried Chicken Sandwich from local chef and author J. Kenji Lopez Alt, uh, which featured a fried chicken, which fried chicken with Korean spices, chili oil, dill pickles, gochujaru ranch on a Little Woody's bun, and... Like last year, I felt like I missed out on the highest quality version of this because I got it like immediately after Lil Woody's opened the first day that they were serving it. And to hear in particular Chris Wheeler's description of it, uh, it was he he thought it was better than Maona's fried chicken sandwich. Wow. Okay. Which is high price. And it sold out like it was immensely popular. Uh, I was a little surprised that there weren't more people at Lil Woody's in White Center when I went today. I think the two of us kind of had experiences based on messaging with him that met in the middle a little bit on our experiences last year. And I, I mean, it was definitely quite delicious. I, I feel like I got a lot of the Gochugaru ranch and that provided a tremendous amount of flavor to go along with the chicken. So quite, but more the Korean spicing. That was kind of what I felt was missing when I had it last year. That was noticeable this time. All right. So you've got until next Monday to get that one. I'll be there. All right. With that, I think it's time for Coach's Corner. (laughs) It's a fun one. Uh, So this is not technically a team that I coach, thankfully. But uh, the the babiest fantasy genius is playing basketball this year. I think I might have mentioned that. Uh, Young youngest the young first time that the city of Renton, I believe, has ever had kindergarten basketball. Uh, and it is pure chaos always with kindergarten basketball, right? There's a lot of times when the players just like, they will pick up the ball and go shoot on whatever hoop that there is, right? So they're working on shooting at the right hoop. Anyway, uh, before this the game that is this last weekend, the team has played two games. They literally have not made a shot yet all season. They are waiting for basket number one. And I said that morning, because none of my children, even though I coached two of these goddamn teams before this last weekend, had scored a point in any games. And I was like, this is the week that the Carasino boys score a point. That's it. <laughs> All I'm asking for is one basket. And Mateo, he, he hears that message loud and clear. 
right? He comes out. He gets the ball. First play. Drives it down to the hoop. Nobody is defending him. He just like walking, sort of dribbling with the ball or whatever. There's nobody within miles. Throws it up there. Bam! Right off the backboard and in. Two points, which is a lot of points in a kindergarten basketball game. An almost insurmountable lead. (laughs) Shortly after that, comes down. Same situation. Knocks in another bucket. Four points for the game. A third time in the like nearing the end of the second quarter. The quarter's like four minutes long or whatever. He comes down. Nobody's defending him. Nobody's anywhere for miles. Another bucket. Six points in the first half. That's when things turn sour. Wait, can you t- talk about the celebrations, though? I saw the celebration on Instagram. <laughs> He came over. He came over to us who were sitting on the sideline uh, and danced around a little bit of after each shot. Because I mean, what's the point of scoring if you can't? Uh, anyway, he's got six points. You would tell him great. act like you've been there before. He literally had never scored no. a basket before. Saturday. The entire team had. I I was like, celebrate all you want for these buckets. You made shots. Uh, he literally does not pass in the entire game. I don't think. Almost nobody on the team passes because that's just not what they do. They're like heat-seeking missiles the second they get the ball. <laughs> and they, they will shoot from anywhere, right? Fortunately, he gets pretty close to the hoop. There's other kids who are like 20 feet away just firing or whatever. And I'm like, all right, let's go. Every time a kid shoots, you basically cheer just because like getting up a shot is exciting when you're in kindergarten. You know, anytime any kid, I'm just like, I cheer when the other team scores. It's just like, like everybody is happy anytime anybody does anything that remotely resembles <laughs> the sport of basketball. Yes. So anyway, we get to the fourth quarter uh, and I can see that Mateo is a little bit bothered during the quarter and I'm on high alert. Right. And I'm like, something is a little bit off here. I think in between the third and the fourth quarter, like I went to go talk to him cause he was mad and that somebody didn't pass him the ball. A couple other kids on the team were, like, only passing it to each other. And he was getting more and more bothered, right? Because he's like, I'm the fucking star of this team, you know? <laughs> he's like, you see, the, you see those six points that are literally not being counted anywhere? <laughs> They're not on the board. <laughs> They're nowhere. They've disappeared into the ether. They're a memory They're, at this point. They're being counted in your eye test, sir. <laughs> yes. But, so it's like, he was mad about that in between the quarters. And he's like, people don't pass me the ball. And I'm like are teetering here going into the fourth quarter so anyway i'm like get a rebound dude like that's how you get the ball uh but he don't pass he don't rebound all he does is shoot (laughs) right (laughs) and a lot of times it's it's if he gets the inbounds pass because the referee is there being like go throw the inbounds pass to this kid so he finally gets the ball in the fourth quarter right he's been begging for it for a really long time and another kid comes down and steals it from him and he can't get the shot up and i'm like Things are teetering real badly at this point. And then, so him and the kid are like on the ground wrestling for the ball or whatever. The referee's like, it's their ball or something. It's the other team's ball. And I see Mateo start running toward midcourt where that kid is holding the ball at midcourt. And I was so close to being like, I don't know if you've seen these videos where there's like a dad chasing after. There's like a kid on a car that's like going really, really fast down a hill. And there's like a dad chasing after it. And he intercepts it right before it hits something where it's just like the anticipation that you have that something is going wrong or whatever. Anyway, I was a step too slow. (laughs) Mateo gets to the kid. You did run out there? Oh, yeah, I ran out of the court immediately. I was, like, sensing that I was going to have to. 
I knew I knew when I was going to have to run out of the court. And I'm very comfortable running out of the court because I coach every team. So I'm just like, whatever. Anyway, he gets to midcourt. Where this and you've kid made friends with every referee, apparently. Oh, it was that same referee that I'd made friends with. I don't think we're, <laughs> I don't think we're friends anymore. Oh, no. uh, Mateo goes after the kid. He was grab, trying to grab the ball. This is another kid who was, like literally was crying earlier in the game because he was upset about something i don't even know maybe not being passed the ball also but i'm like this fucking kid dude mateo runs out there after him rips the ball out of his hands knocking this kid over i get out there i intercept everything rip him away and i'm like you're sitting down you're going to the bench whoever's on the bench the kid on the bench named luca i was like luca you're in and the referee is just like i don't know if there are ejections in this league but like you he cannot be in the game anymore so Mateo's stat line for the game, six points, zero rebounds, zero passes, one ejection. I, I think it has to be the first ever time that somebody was ejected from kindergarten basketball in the city of in the city of Brighton. That's my fucking boy. You know, ordinarily, I would say that he took after you in the time that we thought that you had been ejected from the game in the Puget Sound <sighs> Basketball League for committing a flagrant foul. Although then after a cooling off period, you were allowed back in the game by the referee, which is fortunate because I believe we had either five or six players like, available without you. Was it like you. 80 degrees or, or like hotter? It was really hot that Probably, day, Probably. Right? It was definitely the summer. I, it was one of the best games of my life is what I remember about that one besides being so angry about you. It was like funny because like, we were so upset at you that after you committed that flagrant foul that we were like getting you away as opposed to like the referee or the other team having to do it. Uh, but in this case, in youth basketball, I would have to say that Tay is following in my steps. Footsteps, oh, because in fifth grade, I was the only player in my league to get a technical foul. <laughs> what did you do? There was some kid that I, I like, I was upset. We were going back and forth and I ran down court and threw a shoulder into it. <laughs> And then probably cried about it. If we're I have honest. not seen a technical foul. I've coached a lot of children's basketball <laughs> now over the years. I mean, and it's I have an never, thing. never once seen a technical foul. Never, I've seen ambulances be called for kids getting injured and shit. But Mateo was the first ever player that I've seen ejected. So he goes to practice the following Monday. And the coach was sitting them all down in a circle. And he was like, he was like first off, we won last week. And he was try, trying to give a speech about how they won, but no one passed. Uh, so he starts it out and he's like, first off, we won. And Mateo raises his hand and goes, I'm responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I can imagine it. I was like, oh God. At least he scored all the points. I'm just like. The, co the coach also, he raised like, his hand. Very polite. Yeah, the coach is like, that's true. I guess he also there is another kid who is like like improving throughout the year mateo was like i i don't know what their name is he was like hey ryan i've noticed you've had a lot of improvement throughout the year you're doing great and i'm like <sighs> he came to the practice with me earlier today and i was trying to include him because i knew that we had a kid out and it was just like he had the ball and everybody was around being like pass 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 and i was just like he don't pass <laughs> <laughs> And he did not. He definitely did not pass the ball. Did he dribble? <laughs> he uh, he dribbled occasionally. <laughs> Those were second rounds, though. They're a lot bigger. I was like, he either shoots or he cries. Those are the two things he does <laughs> in basketball. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't wait to see Tay play. For, for the older kids, though, I will say, so we had our first game, Massacre, right? Every single parent left that stadium. Again, stadium. Uh, <laughs> known as the Renton Community <laughs> Center. Every single parent left left the Renton Community Center shamefaced. 
they they wouldn't even look at me right or whatever they weren't like nice job coach oh we'll get them next time coach it was just like they got the fuck out of there right they didn't want to look me in the eyes we had a couple of hard practices right it was just like this is a wake-up call those kids kicked our ass last week that's why i told them i was just like you are going to get your ass kicked again if you do not focus in these practices like we're gonna have hard practices because at this age fifth grade fifth sixth grade people start caring a little bit so other team shows up and uh luca's like oh there's miles or whatever plays aau basketball is going i have all the kids from their elementary school except for the one kid who plays aau basketball and i do say it would be really really nice to have that kid I talked to him and I was just like, why are you playing in this league? <laughs> I've said this to you where I'm like, I, I personally am less convinced of the value of very, very good players playing with players who are playing the sport for their first time ever. Um, I, I'm like, sure, get your reps in or whatever. But like, I, I don't know if it's necessarily the best thing to be like, well, I could do this easy move that would never work in AAU or whatever. And I've roasted Luca who fell over when he was defending him. You know what I mean? Sometimes basketball me, needs to be fun. That was your argument. Sometimes basketball needs to be fun and kicking pe- kicking people's ass is fun. So like uh, I was talking to him before the game and I was like, are you the best player on the team? And he was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> I was like, okay, well maybe the rest of the team sucks or whatever. They did not. They were quite good, but we got the game. We had a third quarter where it's like, oh shit, we are finally, we're setting screens. We were making passes. We were finding the big men in the post, dropping off passes, hitting layups. Luca scored six points also. Uh, we played good defense. I instituted a zone in the paint. Technically illegal. Uh, yeah, you don't want to let the referees know about that in case they're listening. I, I They're not. I assure you. Also, they probably wouldn't be able to tell. Um, <laughs> so I, I have the two big men. I have them zoning up in the paint, right? Anything that comes in there. And I'm just like, you got this side. You got this side. Shut it down. We're, play, we're playing man on the perimeter, but zone in the paint. And that worked very, very well. And so we ended up losing. But it was like the game got within eight points or so and it looked like basketball and it was sort of like what's what's the game harvard beats yale seven to seven or something sounds right yeah uh it was like it was like bulldogs lose to I, volunteers is who they were it was like bulldogs lose to volunteers. they're all sec teams thankfully bulldogs lose to volunteers or bulldogs beat volunteers by losing 42 to 28 or something it was like we left that game parents were like this team is so much better than they were last game. Oh, every, every, pe- people were just, we were just like high-fiving. I was going nuts. Uh, I've got an assistant coach now. We were going crazy on the sideline. It was very, very fun. Oh, I thought you were your assistant coach. Which I didn't see you there, Mr. Mock Offseason. Uh, for the record, it's Harvard beats Yale 29-29. Harvard beats Yale. Much 20. higher scoring game than you were thinking. Yes. Back in 1968. So... Uh, <laughs> I was, I'm not gonna say it. Uh, anyway, it was like great podcasting. The, the parents, I was, I was, the the parents were all very excited after the game, and I was like, "All right, I finally have done something here." And to me, that's like, if we with a bunch of kids who've never played organized basketball before are playing competitively with kids who play AAU, I'm just like, that is literally like that to me is a. I care more about coaching this team than I cared about coaching the team that was really good last year and was beating the crap out of everybody. You know what I mean? Because I've got to actually fucking work on this. Like, we've got to strategize. We've got to hustle. So, uh, I was very, very happy with this loss. (laughs) 
Uh, we'll stay tuned. We'll see if you can win a game for real in the future. Let's get into the rundown, starting with the Mariners. Due to a new MLB rule limiting teams to four jerseys, the Mariners will ditch their traditional gray jersey, road jerseys this season, as well as powder blue they previously wore during spring training. The remaining four jerseys that they will carry forward, the home white, the alternate cream throwback with blue and yellow. Like the, the Sunday jerseys. Yeah, the Northwest Green, a.k.a. teal throwback, and Navy, with Navy to become their primary road jersey this season. I, I really don't like it. I'm okay with it. I I do not like the idea of only like limited shades of color, I guess, in jerseys. Like I like soccer, where you're just wearing two contrasting colors. All right, Kraken news. They split their last two games before the All-Star break at home, losing 5-2 to Calgary on Friday in an atypically poor performance where they were outshot 38-30 before they beat Columbus 3-1 on Saturday. They played both of those games without Matty Beneers, who suffered an injury when he was barreled over by Tyler Mears of, Myers of the hated Canucks on Wednesday. Beneers will also miss Saturday's All-Star do- game due to injury, leaving oh. the Kraken without a representative in action. Uh, Starting Saturday, the Kraken have nine days off in total for their all-star break before returning to action next Tuesday to start a five-game East Coast trip against the Islanders. They hit the break tops in the Pacific Division, although it's tight. They're tied with the LA Kings, one point up on the Vegas Golden Knights, who hold the three guaranteed playoff spots from the Pacific thus far. The Kraken have played four fewer games than LA, two fewer than Vegas, so still in good shape to win the division. Dallas Stars and Winnipeg Jets, who have also played more games, lead the West Standings from the Central Division. Is this the Mariners? Are they doing blue on blue? No, they'll still do gray pants. Okay, it's just it's the, the blue, tops. blue jersey and gray pants. Yeah, I know. I think they only have white and blue, gray tops. I really like the gray on gray, but whatever. It's not a bad look. I, I don't I mean, and it's certainly been traditional for a long period of time. One thing I learned researching this or reading about this at least, was uh, that blue was originally their primary road color. They didn't go till gray to gray until the 1980s. So some, a cracking controversy off the ice. As local supergroup Who Is She, comprised of members of Taco Cat, Chastity Belt, and Lisa Prank, was scheduled to perform at all three cracking games last week. On Wednesday, they performed a song they called My My Orca Card, Remixing La Tigre's My My Metro card with Seattle-specific lef- lyrics, including changing a reference to Rudy Giuliani to Jeff Bezos. Here are the lyrics. Oh no, Jeffrey Bezos. He's such a total jerk. Shut down all the bookstores. Billionaires do not work. Who is she was then not invited back for the remaining two scheduled games and said they were told by a Kraken employee that they, quote, weren't a good fit for hockey and the Bezos line, quote, didn't help. <laughs> didn't help. After the story became news, uh, after they posted about it on social media, the Kraken responded Monday with a statement to the Seattle Times saying, the Seattle Kraken welcomes a variety of artists to play at our games, and we do not believe in censoring these artists. Those artists is as reflected by the variety of acts who perform at Climate Pledge Arena. However, we reserve the right to part ways early with an act if their behavior does not meet the professional standards we expect. We We also must ensure that the act is appropriate for the family audience that attend our games. This decision was not related to the band's choice of song. We require that our artists are professional, punctual, and avoid consuming alcohol during their performance. As such, who is she did not play the following two games. We wish them well. 
The band, naturally, did not appreciate the implicit accusations they are telling the Times. We're not sure why anyone having a drink at a hockey game of all places would be such an issue in the first place. But the fact that we truly weren't inebriated at all just makes defending ourselves that much more exhausting. Also mentioned that one of the group's members' parents was flying in to see them perform at Saturday's game, which they did not. Uh, I mean, I have it on very good accord that they were fired immediately following the performance, right? Uh, This wasn't a situation where they like had drank anything or whatever it's it's just like a the the team was trying to use a thing that would win them better hold on let me think about this word that would sound better to public opinion right if you say that somebody is drunk you're like that's fine i feel like they couldn't quite accept that it's obviously and clearly because of the Jeff Bezos thing, right? That's it, period. There's no other argument to the story. It sure seems like the logical conclusion, reviewing the evidence. They were fired immediately following, and that's it. I don't really understand what this line is from their quote. Uh, Where is it? What? The Seattle Kraken welcomes a variety of artists to play at our games. We do not believe in censoring those artists, as is reflected by the variety of acts who perform at Climate Pledge Arena. That doesn't actually mean anything. Saying nobody else of... has a song about <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's... like a common thing. The So to say that, being like, there's many acts who play here. We don't censor them at all. It's just like, clearly you do. Uh, the thing that, that I, and this is what I said immediately when I heard about the situation, because there's close relationships between people I work with and the band or whatever. We, we have had different members of Taco Cat on Talking Taco time. Was this reeks, it reeks of middle management. That is what the thing that I smelled the yeah, most. Because obviously like Jeff Bezos wasn't Jeff aware Bezos of this immediately. Jeff Bezos give a <laughs> fuck. I'm sorry. When you are Jeff Bezos, you could care less about this. If somebody went to Jeff Bezos and was just like, Hey, this is, I feel like this Jeff is Bezos might be moderately annoyed. He could care. I could see him caring. But this was about the hypothetical fear. The yes. fear oh, yeah. of somebody caring. And that is the worst thing that can creep in. And that is fucking middle management behavior. It is somebody else could be mad about something and they could hypothetically blame me. That is what I felt for this entire thing. It's just like, dog. I honestly, this is not a story. Literally, we are not talking about this right now. If they just had the band play, if they were like, they came back for the show that Saturday and they're just like, great to see you. Exactly. Period. <laughs> like, that's it. That's it's how a, you act. It's a Streisand effect. Oh, People it's huge. People do not know the Streisand effect. It's like, now the, it, whatever you, whatever job you do, if it's forward facing, the number one thing you should learn about is the Streisand effect. And to think that you're going to fire them in this way and they that's why, wouldn't. That's, by the way, that's one of my top five effects. We've oh, gone over it on Twitter. Huge, huge effect. The, but to think that you would fire them in this way and it wouldn't become amplified after that is just like, this looks a lot fucking worse for the Kraken and for Jeff Bezos. Correct. If I'm Jeff Bezos now, which obviously he doesn't give a shit about any of this. I doubt Jeff Bezos is perusing through the Seattle Times being like, oh, well. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're just things... He's not the owner of the team, right? They no. are, he is the, has the name, his company and one of their pledges has the naming rights to the arena. It's not that close of a relationship. So it, it's just something where it's like, 
I, they they were so worried that fear crept in, right? And they were like, they have to be gone. Some somebody made that call, and they're like, they have to be gone, or whatever. And it fucking blew up in their faces, and I'm happy it did. All right, let's move on to the Sounders, whose FIFA Club World Cup quarterfinal match is coming up this Saturday at 9.30 a.m. Pacific. It'll be on Fox 13 Plus in the Seattle area, FS2 nationally. Sounders are hosting a watch party at the Armory for the game. They will face the winner of All Ali SC and Auckland City FC, who match up on Wednesday evening, Wednesday morning here in Tangier, Morocco, which is also where the semifinal will be played. I have to issue a belated podcast geography. The listener did not call us out on this. I just noticed it myself. When we first discussed the draw, I casually referred to Auckland as the Asian Football Conference Champions League winner. But of course, because they are not in Australia, they are in New Zealand. They are the Oceania Champions League, where they dominate with 10 OCL titles. All EFC has won an identical number of CAF Champions League titles. So... Both of them will have more experience in this competition than the Sounders, who are, of course, the first MLS team ever to participate in the FIFA Club World Cup, first to win in the CONCACAF Champions League era. Uh, Sounders played a pair of friendlies on Saturday, splitting their roster between the two of them to get their lone club action against opponents before the Club World Cup. The likely starters played to a scoreless draw with Wolfsburger of Austria 0-0. The other key players faced Sweden's Hammerby, which, fun fact, boasts Zlatan Ibrahimovic is minority investor. No, don't talk bad about him. So he probably <laughs> took out a full-page ad thanking... No songs. Giving, telling the Sounders to thank him for letting them play the playing that Vol- match. Wolfsburger. Wolfsburger. Uh, lost 3-2 with Freddie Montero netting a goal, and Joao Paulo playing the entire first half in his first competitive action since an ACL tear in the CONCACAF Champions League final. Uh, also notable from the starting lineup the Sounders put out there in those games, Josh Atencio played with the starters in place of Joao Paulo in midfield, while Jackson Regan played as a central defender with the starters ahead of Javier Arriaga. Uh, also, we talked about him last week, Last week, left back Tate Schmidt no longer on the Sounders preseason roster, so still TBD, who might be back, yep, knew who in that spot. UW women's basketball suffered another competitive loss against a ranked team on Friday, leading number 19 Arizona 37-35, heading into the fourth quarter on the road before falling by seven points in that game, uh, despite Haley Van Dyke's 16 points, which led three Huskies in double figures. On Sunday, though, UW got over the top, snapping a three-game losing streak and surpassing last year's total of two conference wins by beating host Arizona State. They forced two misses on the final possession to preserve that preserve that win in Tempe. Delea Daniels led the way with 14 points, eight boards. Huskies back home this weekend to host the Bay Area schools on Friday. Two and eight Cal visits in the Daniels' first matchup against her former team after transferring to UW. Sunday, it's number two Stanford in town for a matinee. The Cardinal lead the Pac-12 at nine and one. Their lone conference loss coming at USC. 21 and 2 overall. Their other loss was to undefeated number one South Carolina. Stanford is looking for a third consecutive Final Four appearance behind a talented front line led by seven, six foot seven center Cameron Brink, who recorded a triple double with blocks last week, the second oh, in Pac 12 conference history. And personal forward Haley Jones, considered a likely top three draft pick, assuming she declares for the draft and foregoes a potential fifth year of eligibility. All right. You know, men's basketball. 
Split last week against the Arizona schools, they trailed 12-0 to start Thursday's game before an Arizona State dry spell changed things dramatically. The Sun Devils missed 21 out of 22 shots during an extended stretch before finally making another one at the end of the first half to trail 32-20. Neither team led by more than four in the final 7-57 of regulation. Huskies still seem to be in good shape with a three-point lead in the ball inside the final 10 seconds. Alas, Keon Brooks Jr. missed the front end of a one-and-one, then fouled Austin Nunez in the act of shooting a three. Nunez calmly knocked down all three attempts to force overtime. There, the Huskies built a seven-point lead, but still needed to sweat out a potential tying three just before the buzzer to get their third consecutive home win. Because, of course, (laughs) sweat sweat out a potential tying three. Well, we'll talk in a second about the sweating out a lot of victories. That home winning streak ended in a big way Saturday against Arizona is when these two teams met in Tucson. The Huskies started strong, leading 20 to 11 early. The Wildcats were up just two at the break. UW was ahead by that same mark with 17 minutes remaining when the dam broke. Arizona went on a 19 nothing run with the Huskies going scoreless for more than six and a half minutes. They would go on to score 57 points in the second half, picking out part the UW zone repeatedly and winning this one. Uh, say 95 to 72. At five and seven, the Huskies tied for seventh in the Pac-12 with WSU heading into this weekend's play, but their minus 5.1 point differential ranks 10th, four behind four and eight Colorado, which is neutral on the season, and three and nine Stanford, which is minus 0.9 points per game. The Huskies' average win in conference play has come by 7.2 points, including the last three by precisely three points each. Their average loss is by 14 points, including three by 20 plus now, two of those at Heckhead. I mean, I hope the season is a little bit, we'll see how the rest of it goes, but is assessed based upon those numbers, right? Like this team has fun differential at the moment behind them. And they're still, uh, I still don't think even when you're five, yeah, I don't think when you're five and seven, it's fun differential. Anytime you exceed your run differential, you have fun differential, but uh, that's happening and they're still five and seven. Like they've been extraordinarily lucky so far in the season to, but to, and to be there clearly talent wise and the overall roster is probably around that 10th in the pack 12. I mean, that's about where they were picked coming into the season. Certainly. Uh, so one of those 20 point losses came to their next opponent, UCLA on new year's day at heck ed Bruins have lost their last two games. We mentioned last week, they lost a showdown at Arizona, but then their rivalry game, against USC at the Galen Center last Thursday. They've had a week off since that game ahead of the uh, their matchup with the Huskies. Despite those losses, the Bruins still number four overall in the Ken Palm rankings. They are 0-3 against Ken Palm top 25 teams, including Arizona, but have nine wins by 20-plus points. And their point differential at plus 7.7 in conference play easily leads the Pac-12. Who, is, who are the star players in USC, UCLA again? Jaime Jaquez Jr. Uh, is, you know, the guy who is their their best player, was part of their Final Four team, uh, along with uh, Tiger Campbell was also part of that team. And uh, then then they have uh, Jalen Clark as an NBA prospect, along with Jaquez. Okay. On Saturday, the Huskies faced those Trojans who are third in the Pac-12 at 7-3. and three. Since their opening home loss to Florida Gulf Coast, they really don't have a bad loss. 
Washington State and Pullman, their only team to beat them in Pac-12 play besides UCLA and Arizona. Both of those also on the road, so they're undefeated at home in conference play. Still only 42nd in Ken Palm, but up to a number nine seed after that win over UCLA in the latest bracketology. Trojans have also gotten a lift with the return of five-star freshman center Vince Iwachukwu, who missed the first 16 games after suffering cardiac arrest during an off-season workout, but has been cleared to return. Iwachukwu played a career-high 17 minutes against UCLA and gives the Trojans a pair of elite shot blockers coming off the bench behind starting center Joshua Morgan. UCLA has actually only been averaged defensively in conference play because they're allowing opponents to rebound 36.5% of their missed shots, the most in the Pac-12, but they are second in Pac-12 play in adjusted offensive efficiency. So you add that all up, we're looking likely looking at an 0-2 weekend five, for the Huskies. Five and nine in Pac-12 play. Yeah, as they suffered, they were winless against the UCLA school, the LA schools, I should say, at home. All right, we alluded to this earlier, but Christian Cable reported Monday that UW offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb had become a, quote, person of serious interest for Alabama's search for an offensive coordinator to replace Bill O'Brien, who took the same job with the Patriots. Capel then followed up and reported Tuesday that Grubb has decided to stay after signing two new contracts already this offseason. So bring on Bama's search for an offensive coordinator. (laughs) That's one we can win, apparently. There we go. Uh, this was awesome. I fully expected when we heard that he was a person of serious interest was going to Tuscaloosa to interview with Alabama. It was, I was like, he can't really be looking for more money. At yeah. This it's point. not really a leverage play. Yeah. It's just like, he's gone. You know, we'd, we'd seen that. It's like, if he gets offered this job, he's gone. And then for Ryan Grubb to come back. Remember when we were nervous about Roma Tunze? Like it is set in stone. This team is back for another season. I think you really have to give a lot of credit to the, the, Michael Penix Jr. I was going to say the man at the top. Kalen DeBoer also, but I mean, Michael yes. Penix Jr. as well. Coming back, setting that tone so early in the process and then getting everybody else to fall in line behind him. Uh, this team is really, really poised for next season. And this was, it was, it was a curveball. It was something that I think we weren't really anticipating. It but... seemed like this was over. I didn't really, you know, I hadn't really thought about the fact that Alabama was searching for an offensive coordinator. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we didn't really chat about it, but obviously Ryan Grubb would be near the top of that list. It so makes coming sense. back for yes. another season, it really feels like, I mean, part of it had to have been, I, I think if you break it down, understanding why Ryan Grubb made have, might have made this decision, maybe he feels like he's closer to a head coach job by staying here instead of maybe people would have felt like he'd have to do a little bit more time as an OC if he would have gone to Alabama or whatever. Also, like, there is a certain element where the Alabama OC job is kind of thankless to a certain extent where like anything goes wrong. If Alabama loses two or three games or whatever, and their offense isn't amazing, like you, you kind of need to be like the best in the country or really, really close to it to be able to get any sort of accolades. I mean, it's kind of shocking that Bill O'Brien got an NFL job after it's kind of shocking. I don't think it is shocking. Stop, stop right there. I don't think it is shocking given that obviously he previously held that job for the Patriots and previously before they hired him, they had former Patriot defensive coordinators holding the offensive coordinator role. He's also a fired white coach. So like they always are going to find another job. Uh, but I I can see the argument there. And I think otherwise, I think as really long as the, about- by the way, as long as the Patriots don't let Bill O'Brien trade DeAndre Hopkins under any circumstance or future first round picks, I think they'll be okay. 
we'll see. We'll see. Alabama I don't, didn't go again, to the I don't think the, playoff. Well, again, I don't think Bill O'Brien's coordination was what what was his undoing in Houston. Or uh, Jadavian Clowney, another person you should not be allowed to trade again. Just not allowed to trade at all. <laughs> I don't feel like that one backfired that much, but still the process was was not good. Uh but yeah, Ryan Ryan Grubb coming back. I, I mean, I considered him as good as gone. Right? I had already kind of talked myself into whoever the replacement was. Right? I was like, who's the Mike Kafka here? You know what I mean? Like, I was like, who who else is next in line? Uh, and I'd seen a lot of people. There's been some Ken Dorsey hate a little bit recently about his offensive coordination. I think what? I think he might be bad. Uh, so it, it's not always that the the next man up is going to be as good as the last person who was doing the job. I don't think oh, you can say know. recency but bias do, is a hell of a drug. But I also think you have to give Kalen DeBoer a lot of credit here, right? Like the thing is, Ryan yeah. Grubb is also operating within the Kalen DeBoer system. So as long as the talent is there and Kalen DeBoer is there, I think that UW could have was I don't think it would radically change my perspective on this upcoming season if Ryan Grubb wasn't there, but I feel a lot better with him coming back. Great. So as we already knew, one of the people who is not coming back to the UW offense is Sam Heward, who announced last week that he is transferring to not Fresno State. Right. Shocking. Tristan and only I'm Tristan. Honestly offended by this information somehow. <laughs> Heward announced Monday on ESPN Seattle uh, with his uncle Brock that he's headed to FCS school Cal Poly, where his former Kennedy Catholic head coach Sheldon Cross was recently hired as the offensive coordinator under former WSU head coach Paul Wolf. Didn't so, you say that there was a chance that he would go to like another, another Pac-12 school? Yes, I did say that. I kind of saw this and I was like. It's tough to say how much of it is the timing of this transfer and just him looking for an opportunity to really play this season versus, you know, what the assessment from schools at the FBS level was about Sam Heward's performance at UW. I mean, I. I don't know. I guess I'm going to say that pro- I was wrong about the school, but I think process wise, I was right. Right. Cause I told you he was going to go somewhere where he could be the starting quarterback immediately. You did say that. Yes. And I'm assuming that's the case at Cal Poly, but they like, do have some returning quarterbacks, but the team was not very good last season. If he under, does it with the Cal Poly job, it's over under but Bo Baldwin. I, I kind of feel like I was surprised that, and maybe there was interest who knows, but I kind of figured that there would be more interest in Sam Heward, but I, I I feel bad for Sam Heward that I think ultimately the thing that really kind of screwed him was those games that he played at the end of his freshman season where he didn't look very good because he just wasn't ready. The offense wasn't right. Everything about the program was broken at the time. And I feel bad that Sam Heward had to kind of get caught up in that. I mean, I think one of the good things that we can say about college football in the year 2023 is that, look, if you perform well enough, People are going to find out. So I don't know if there's a transfer back to the FBS level at some point, if that's even a possibility. But again, if if he performs well at Cal Poly, the level is not going to hold well, him back. There's NFL quarterbacks who go to small colleges. Correct. So we can think of multiple FCS quarterbacks who you know, have been drafted in the top five. So not Cal Poly necessarily, but <laughs> no. But again, if you get to that level that, you know, North Dakota or North Dakota State or whoever that is, has been playing at, it's, it's certainly possible. Or Delaware in the Joe Flacco era. He wasn't quite top five, but first rounder. All right, let's wrap up, wrap up with a little Seahawks news. 
Uh, ES, my ESPN colleague Adam Schefter reported that Seahawks quarterback coach Dave Canales will get a second interview for the Ravens offensive coordinator job. I got to admit, this had not been on my radar previously. Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, the Broncos hired Sean Payton. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I said you didn't have to include this on the rundown, but uh, I I just it's so shocking to me how the Broncos have chosen to run a franchise by trading all their first round picks. Trading all their first round picks. I mean, I was a little confused when it, the report came in that they were trading their 2023 first round pick because uh, I was like, no, don't the Seahawks have that? But I'd forgotten the about trade? the Bradley Chubb trade. Yeah. But I would still also say a first-round pick rather than their first-round pick. The, the key difference the, in this case. I think the thing about it is just, I mean, we saw this with the Seahawks that I, I think things are going to go well. Like, I again, mark me down as a lock for the Broncos over next year, unless they're so trendy. They are going to be extraordinarily trendy as an over-under pick, unless they fucking, they're so trendy that it gets up to like 10 and a half wins. Like, mark me down as a lock for that one. They're probably going to be a very good team. But... When you look in the longer term, Russell Wilson's not a young quarterback. I think he'll have a bounce back season. They're just going to, they have had so many drafts now where they haven't been able to draft players. Like that really is how you replenish talent. And they're going to not have been able to do it at a high level. They all, they had to trade talent to get the pick, to trade the pick for a coach. So it's really like. And also it's one thing like, you know, everyone focuses on the Rams training first round picks. and They've traded some other picks this year, but. The Broncos also will have traded second round picks in, I think, three consecutive drafts, right? And they're not as they're not as adept as the Rams have been at picking up comp picks. And also, the Rams were bad this year. Like (laughs) using the Rams model is not exactly a model that necessarily needs repeating. No one, no one tell LeBron James. (laughs) I, I mean. Uh, I wanted to quickly complain about something with the Geno Smith discourse. Absolutely. Which is like, there's a sense of number one, people are saying the Seahawks shouldn't pay Geno Smith what he's demanding. I've seen that out there. And like, <laughs> we literally don't know. Did he report it to you? What he's demanding as if Geno tweeted a dollar amount, <laughs> but also like Geno Smith isn't in a Latrell Sprewell situation. He's not like just going to go home and retire. If, the Seahawks don't pay him what he thinks he's worth. He's the reason he's asking for a certain amount of money is because other teams are likely to offer him the same amount of money if he enters free agency. And so this means a couple of things. Number one, that like, he, I think the important thing I guess that it means is you know there's been just so much talk, especially with Jalen Hurts making the Super Bowl and the the Forty Nineers with Brock Purdy facing in the NFC Championship game. Like people do the step one quarterback with low salary step two question mark step three super bowl mm-hmm. and it's not that simple obviously if you do have a really good quarterback on a rookie contract that is the single most valuable thing you can have but if it were just that easy everyone would play a quarterback on their rookie contract no one would pay quarterbacks money after their rookie contract they do that because all those other teams have gone through situations where they've realized how shitty life is when you don't have a good quarterback. And we kind of thought the Seahawks were going to deal with that reality this season when they didn't have Russell Wilson by some combination of Geno Smith just being way better than we all thought and Shane Waldron's offense. We'll see you know, which factor was which. 
Geno Smith was just very good. They never had to deal with that. But the teams that are considering paying Geno Smith certainly have had to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I just love this idea that players demand salaries also. It's just like he has agents who have heavily researched the market. You know what I mean? That's what I mean, they're doing. I mean, they're when you draw these... that distinction, though, you are a little unfair to players like Bobby Wagner that represent themselves. They could also research the market. The agents speak on behalf of the players. But the agents are guiding what the players are paid. You know what I mean? They're the ones who are saying, hey, here's what we could get in this market. We've had these conversations with these teams. We've done this and that. Like, we're able to get this money. And Geno Smith should make the most fucking money he possibly can. I mean, we've been over this. Again, just like, there are so many shitty quarterbacks that got $30 million a year. There is no reason Geno Smith will not get also, $30 million a year. Has Geno Smith said a number to anybody? No, of course not. Has this that been is reported? all, like, hypothetical. It's it's, it's just making like, up like a villain Geno Smith in your head who's no, demanding. It's, it's a it's a what's the straw man? It's a Geno Smith straw man. I I told you straight up this is exactly what's happening. Right. Second, I was wrong. The second that Geno Smith started asking for money, that's when people turn. But Gino again, Smith. didn't ask for money. The or, second no, Geno the Smith second, hypothetically concept. required money. Exactly, Geno Smith. For all we know, publicly, might go to the team and be like, you know what? I, you really showed faith in me. I will play for $7 million a year. We don't know, right? We're he, literally he making up enough. For no, he won't. But like, th that's there's as much information about Geno Smith asking for $50 million a year publicly as there is for Geno Smith asking for $5 million a year. None of it is out there. It is all made up. But it is also just a general thing. People will say, well, player X wants Y. Well, yeah, lots of people want things, but what's important isn't necessarily what you want, although that can inform whether you stay with your former team or go to another team. Again, what's important is what you're able to get, what leverage you have. Yes. That's what matters, it's not what you want. Arguing against the idea of market value. That's it, right? Like It's all people being like, the idea of this market value that Geno Smith clearly probably has I'm angry about that. <laughs> I don't want Geno Smith to have that leverage or that market value. I want it to be less. That's it, period. It has nothing to do with Geno Smith. You're angry at the idea of fair market value. Sorry. We live in a fucking capitalist society. You're it's gonna... angry about quarterbacks being expensive. I mean, look, the, the market is not perfect. There are inefficiencies out there. And I also don't want to say that, like, therefore, automatically, the Seahawks should re-sign Geno Smith no matter what. They are just, in a relatively unusual position of having a top five pick is they make this decision. I I want to do a lot more research on rookie quarterbacks before I come to any conclusion. But don't that, just give me the step one cheap quarterback, step three Super Bowl. Well, I'll tell step you two a quarterback with the fifth pick ain't that cheap. But like the But it's, it's still relative like ain't Brock Purdy. I'm I'm trying to think of I mean, you know, part of the reason that I'm skeptical about this is name the recent number five pick who has actually been an effective. I guess Justin Herbert was in the drafted in this yeah. range. So now, but now that you have Justin Herbert, he's such an enormously valuable player that you do have a lot of upside. Kind of. He's won like, zero playoff games. He's been to one playoff game and lost. Like, I mean, again, I, the evidence suggests overwhelmingly that the two things you should do with a top five pick or trade for a draft a quarterback or trade with someone else who is going to draft a quarterback. Those are the two things you should do. So I agree that you should there probably is be drafting a quarterback constantly. But I also don't like this idea of like what should the Seahawks do about Geno? As if it's just their decision. You know what I mean? Like 
it, this is a contract negotiations are a mutual thing. It's not just like Gino sets a number and, and the Seahawks are like, yes or no. Right. <laughs> it, it, it is a rotating and evolving conversation that happens based upon fair market value. And that as it evolves based upon their conversations with other quarterbacks or in the draft about who's going to be available and who they want. It is a very complicated thing. It's not just and Gino has to want to do it, too. What if Gino is just like, holy shit, I got offered $40 million a year from the Jets. I could go back and take this fucking team's money. Maybe Gino wants to do that, right? And the Seahawks I mean, it's not necessarily just about Gino because, again, they can use the franchise tag, which would give them a degree of control over the situation. Yes, no, it, it absolutely does. But it's not like the Seahawks should do X or the Seahawks should not do X. Because, again, it, it, is, it is a well, mutual decision to sign a long-term contract. But it's more like, it's, it's like, like when people say, well... Should player X be traded? And the answer is for what? Like what yes. is being offered? Because if somebody's offering like a ridiculous amount, any player should be traded. And if nobody's offering anything, then probably even bad players. I mean, maybe mediocre players shouldn't be traded. The conversation so. should be, should the Seahawks fr franchise tag Geno? Because that's the only thing they have control over. Correct. And the answer to that is obviously or, yes, period. Or sign him to an extension prior to the franchise tag deadline. But they... They can try to sign him to an extension, but they cannot choose to sign Geno Smith to an extension. The Correct. only thing that they have control over is to franchise tag Geno Smith. Will the Seahawks try to sign Geno Smith before the franchise tag extension or whatever? Absolutely they will. They're not going to just be like, franchise tagged, all right, we'll talk to you next April or whatever. That is what's going to happen. But the only decision that requires just the Seahawks is the franchise tag. That's it. And they should and they will. It's done. It is set in stone that the Seahawks will franchise tag Geno Smith. I don't That's think it's it. set in stone. Period. Overwhelmingly oh, who likely. didn't call Sam Hewer to Fresno State? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. It, that that annoys me also. Just like this idea that like, what should the Seahawks do? Just like, well, what should all parties involved choose to do? Because it's a contract negotiation. It's not picking up an extension. It's not picking up the fifth year rookie option or whatever. It is they have one choice and that is it. Period. The Seahawks have one choice in the situation. Will they negotiate with Geno Smith? Of course they will. But they can't nego forcibly negotiate with Geno Smith and make him accept whatever contract they want to send him. Right? They cannot. I I think the rookie quarterback thing was just like, a rookie quarterback, cheap quarterback. I mean, Zach Wilson, again, is not a cheap quarterback. A rookie yes, quarterback. Yes, he is. Again, the I, point is that, like, even okay quarterbacks make $30 million. I mean, yes, he, he is cheap. I, I will agree that he is cheap relative to the quarterback salary, but it's not like he's still more expensive than, again, Jalen Hurts, Brock Purdy, players like that. Sure, but that's not the point of comparison. The point of comparison is the open market salary for a starting quarterback, which is $30 uh, million unless you are a transitory starter. But rookie quarterbacks, to a certain extent, are kind of an albatross. Like... And I think people don't quite grasp that. It's just like rookie quarterback was good. I, there are the a lot of too strong. really bad rookie quarterbacks because yeah, the, the alternative. The floor is very low. The alternative value is extraordinarily high. If you're talking about trading down from that fifth pick, right? You're talking about a lot of draft picks. If I they mean, trade hopefully. down from the fifth pick, well, it'll be something, right? You know, it'll be a, a fairly large combination of draft picks by trading down from that fifth pick and not taking a quarterback. So 
it is it is a large investment of both money and resources in that quarterback and time to make sure that they're good. So it it's a it is a bigger risk to draft a quarterback in that spot than otherwise. And part of the reason that the Niners are in the fucking we're in the NFC championship game, all apologies to Brock Purdy, was because of how good their defense is. Well, yeah, but that's I mean, the point that people make is that if you don't spend money on a quarterback, you can build a really strong defense. So I don't think that's a counter argument. Having having a cheap-ish young defense. It's just that the 49ers really are unusual thing. because they both had the 49ers both had an extremely cheap player playing quarterback and invested a lot of money in the quarterback position, which is an unusual situation. They haven't invested that much money this year. They did Jimmy G still crazy. was making twenty million, wasn't he? No. No way. He's making like seven million this year. Maybe ten. Maybe that was his cap hit. I I don't know. I I think he was still making a lot of money. His uh, contract as a whole was very was pretty lucrative. This one year deal that he was on. He came back on a one year deal this year. He did not come back on a one year deal. They had the ability to get out of his deal. You're you're wrong about this one. I mean, you might be right about his cap hit, but it's not he he didn't sign a new contract. So I thought he signed a new contract. Uh, I guess he did sign the new contract. <laughs> yeah, you're just wrong about this one. And what was it for? Seven million. Exactly what I said. But his cap number was fourteen million. So well, maybe they maybe they released him and then re-signed him on a new contract. I don't think it was that. I think it was just that the signing bonus had carried forward into this season. Okay. Uh, anyway, the Niners have spent a lot of resources on quarterbacks, but they haven't necessarily spent that much money. They have never paid a quarterback in the way that the Raiders paid Derek Carr or whatever. I mean, Jimmy G's ca- cash paid the previous two seasons was $25 million a year. He was high, but he's almost in like twenty five million is sort of the like middle class of starting NFL quarterbacks. And his cap number the first year of the contract was thirty seven million because they gave him a twenty eight million dollar roster bonus. I think it's just that you can't really look at a player's cap hit in any or salary in any given year and determine what it means in terms of investment. They've they've invested plenty in Jimmy Garoppolo, sure. So. But they invested less in him this year than they have in the past, but they also invested the resources of Trey Lance and then trading the draft picks to get Trey Lance. Again, it'll probably catch up. It always does in the NFL. It always catches up. Eh, Sometimes it can take a while. We'll say that. It it can take a while, but it always does. Rosters always get depleted in the NFL. It's the entire point of the sport. We are back Wednesday morning with an update. Brianna Stewart has posted on Twitter that she's chosen... The New York Liberty is her new team. So. Play the sad Pelton cast music. (laughs) The injury timeout Pelton cast music. Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, the sentiment in the league yesterday had really started to become that uh, Stewart was going to the Liberty. I, I heard a variety of things throughout this process. I mean, one of the questions, you know, she'll have to answer that. 
obviously there's so many factors that go into this in terms of, you know, the ability to go back to the state of New York, uh, the, the resources that Liberty have as an organization that we've talked about this whole process. But when Candace Parker signed with the Aces, it definitely did not feel great for the Storm's chances of retaining Brianna Stewart. Yeah, so this news wasn't quite as shocking maybe for you or I this morning uh, because of your description of as the wind was blowing yesterday or whatever. Um, But I guess the follow-up question to this has to be, and what uh, many other questions about Brianna Stewart, but uh, the follow-up question has to be, what does this mean for Courtney Vandersloot at this point? Is Is there a chance that Sloot still comes to Seattle? Or are we considering this a given that she's going to be joining Brianna Stewart in New York? Obviously, there's still a chance that she could come to Seattle. The, the you know, besides for the ability to play with Brianna Stewart, the other conditions that would have made her want to come back, the fact that it's her hometown, uh, the, you know, the void at point guard without Subert, like all of those things are still on the table. <sighs> okay. Well, I mean, I think pretty clearly starting a new era of storm basketball, one that we haven't really seen since the early two thousands and the way that this roster is looking and constructed where for the well, better sort part of, of, because there was a one, one season where the storm had neither super nor Brianna Stewart in 2019, because both of those players missed the season due to injuries. And that's sort of the precedent. I think that they're going to look at in terms of building out this roster. Before we get into what's next though, uh, it still is something that the Storm, for two decades, have more or less had an anchor. I mean, they've had literally had Sue as an anchor that entire time, but then had LJ and Brianna Stewart. It's been a very blessed franchise over the no last question, couple yeah. of decades, and probably the most so in WNBA history at this point. Uh, so it comes as a pretty big shock to the organization and to the city of Seattle to have a Seattle Storm team, again, assuming we're moving forward without Courtney Vandersloot, that doesn't have one of those pillar-level WNBA stars, especially somebody who's been so established and entrenched in the city. Do you think, though, is this the biggest free agent signing in WNBA history? Yeah. I mean, there have been other very good players who changed teams and historically great, like Candace Parker, you know, when she signs officially with the Aces, that'll be her second time. But, you know, one of the things I wrote about in the story that I have up on ESPN.com is that We've seen former MVPs change teams before. We've even seen the Storm once added two MVPs in the same offseason in Cheryl Swoops and Yolanda Griffith back in 2008. But those were players at the end of their careers. Griffith was 38, Swoops was 37. WNBA MVPs have almost never changed teams in their prime. And Brianna Stewart is the first to do so via free agency before the age of, I think, like 30 whatever tina charles was when she signed with phoenix last year was the first of those to happen in free agency it's exclusively been situations where players asked for trades which is how charles went from connecticut to new york and how uh elena deladon went from chicago to washington uh is there something about wnba free agency rules that have changed that made this yeah more yeah possible? no it's it's completely opened up since the current cba went into place in 2020. We've seen big moves basically every offseason since then, this being the biggest, the culmination of them. Okay, so saying that we've seen big moves every offseason since then, knowing that there's always more stars coming into the WNBA, what does this mean next for the Seattle Storm franchise? So again, I think that 2019 season is probably going to be the precedent for them. And, you know, the... The reason they were able to survive that, they were not as good offensively, obviously without Seward and Brianna Stewart, but they were very good at the defensive end of the court, led by Natasha Howard, who was Defensive Player of the Year, was all WNBA first team that se- that season. 
And the player that, you know, you have to envision filling that role is as he make And one of the things we'll kind of find out with how they build out this roster is, you know, do they see as he playing power forward now with Stewie gone or continuing to play center? Uh, but at either of those positions, you know, she's been on a growth trajectory that indicates I, I don't think all WNBA first team is a realistic or fair expectation for her going into the season. But all-star, I think, is and defensive player of the year, I think, is I think both of those are are reasonable possibilities for her. And if she does that and you've got Jewel Lloyd as an offensive anchor to go with her, that's the makings of a playoff team, though not a contender. Where does Jewel Lloyd rank? I was wondering about this because I saw that. I mean, there were some people making arguments back and forth that even Jewel Lloyd and Courtney Vandersloot together are a super team, right? If if you had to do it, wouldn't say that. If you had to do a WNBA rank of players or whatever, which maybe you've done, uh, where do you feel like Jewel Lloyd falls in that? Yeah, I'm trying to think. We we did do this several times. Uh, during last you do work season. at ESPN. It's the only I, thing you do. It, it it is what we do. Okay, so leading and this was leading into the playoffs, ranking the top players in the postseason. So obviously, some players were going to get cut out. Even a general range, rather than necessarily the exact spot. But what? But she was like thirteenth. Okay. Among players in the playoffs. But but when it's a twelve team league, and the NBA being thirteenth is a very very good number in a twelve team league. All of a sudden, thirteenth is it means that you're not. Every team hypothetically ahead could have a better player ahead of them. Well, they don't because most of those players now play for the Aces and the Liberty. And that's yes. that's one of the realities, especially if Sloot goes to the Liberty. That's one of the realities here is this is going to be a more top-heavy league than we've seen in a long period of time. I mean, 10 players made the all-WNBA team last season. Three of them play for the Aces now. <laughs> Three of them play for the Liberty. That's only four to go around for the other 10 teams. Shit. Uh, what is it most like? I know the seventies WM or seventies NBA, right? Whereas like you look at the Celtics rosters and you're just like, good God, how do they have? I mean the eighties, all, all these all these teams, right? But before expansion really hit the NBA, there were a lot less teams, and there were a lot of teams that just had multiple Hall of Fame caliber players. Is that the era that we're kind of going into in the WNBA right now? I I would say we're. Dead. It's more comparable to the stretch where the Warriors and Cavaliers ran the NBA. But the other thing about it is like, this might not be a stretch because the prioritization rules are coming in 2024. A lot of these players might not play in the WNBA at all that season, especially the Aces players or the, I'm sorry, the the Aces players generally don't play overseas. You know, they're, they're a younger group and, and Candace Parker is past the point where she plays overseas. Although this may be her last WNBA season, but which again is also kind of a limiting factor, but like Vandersloot, Stewart, John Cole Jones, these have been three of the most outspoken players that against the prioritization rule and indicated that they can plan to continue playing overseas. So it's possible we don't see any of them in the league at all in 2024. That is wild. Is it, That's it. You can't play at all or you have to be back by a certain day. You have to be back by the start of training camp or you cannot play at all. And they're all playing for Fenerbahce? They're all playing in Turkey. Sloot okay. recently signed for Fenerbahce to join Stewart there. John Cole Jones plays for a different Turkish team. Okay. I mean, this this rule was obviously so absurd, but the the idea that you're like, we want more demand in the WNBA, so we're going to make our star players not play in the WNBA is the most absurd fucking rule. How about you pay the players more? Period. That's it. I mean, they're they're hoping that doing this will allow them to pay the players more. Uh, I will How? say, they, how does that happen? 
You well, think people are like, well, I'm not going to tune into the Liberty game. I personally have seen these players already in Fenerbahce. I'm good. They're increasing the length of the season is part of what they're doing. So it's oh, up to 40 yeah. games this Yeah, season. that's always increasing the season length. That's uh, To me, February basketball is where it's at. <laughs> Give me some January they're not, basketball. They're not going I'm into February saying, like, at this point. That is, not, that is not how you increase interest. This is how you increase interest right here by having Brianna Stewart sign with the Liberty. And I do think... Ultimately, when you look at this, very bad for the Storm. For the league in general, having the Liberty and the Aces battle it out. I mean, again, as you mentioned, things change very, very quickly. And things change in unexpected ways. We've seen super teams or whatever in every sport. I mean, I, I, mean, I wrote about a super team with the Phoenix Mercury last season. And tragically, we never saw that group together because of Brittany Griner's detainment you know, uh, in, in Russia. So obviously you can't exactly project these things out because as something looks preseason, things change very, very quickly throughout a season. But if these two teams do battle it out in the WNBA finals, I think it is going to be probably some of the most compelling WNBA basketball we've ever seen. 100% agree. No. So for the league and the interest in this league, the 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 kind of attention that was paid to the Breonna Stewart signing, I mean, you're talking about Again, this is this is like LeBron leaving the Cavs the first time, right? In terms of the interest in it, or in interest, terms of magnitude, etc. Magnitude, yeah, magnitude without question, yeah. And and changing the balance of power within the league, uh, so having that happen ultimately is probably good for the league long term. But for the Storm, I mean, you talk about trying to make the playoffs. What about long term? Is there has there been a sort of have teams started tanking in the WNBA in the way that they have in the NBA? And is that something that the Storm should consider? <laughs> well, well, you would say the most one of the most successful tech jobs in WNBA history was the Storm to get Brianna Stewart in 2016. So, I mean, one of the things that is worth noting here is leading up to that Stewart lottery, and part of the reason the Storm ended up winning it, were in best position to win it, is the league that year went to a two-year record to determine the lottery standings as opposed to just looking at the most recent season. So the idea that you do like the Warriors style one year in the lottery and get a high draft pick and then, you know, are back at it. Although obviously James Wiseman hasn't been a big factor in their success since then, not really a thing in the WNBA. So now the, the 2024 draft is considered deep enough at this point, you've got potentially both Paige Beckers from UConn and Caitlin Clark from Iowa, uh, along with some other top prospects. You know, even if you're in the lottery at all, it could be a good year to do so as compared to the past few years. It's basically been, you know, even the third and I mean, the storm had the number held the number one pick in 2021 for a while as part of the not Natasha Howard sign and trade. And it didn't turn out to have almost any trade value. And and that was the correct assessment. No one from that draft looks like they are going to be a long-term WNBA contributor. But obviously there's going to be players in the future. So do, what is the best way if you're trying to compete with what look like, a, I mean, clearly are a young Liberty team, a young Aces team who are both extraordinarily talented. What is the best way for a WNBA team in the position that the Storm are in just lost their generational talent star player, right? How do they get back to that point? Is it tanking? What, what is the what is the best route? I think the best route is to put yourself in position to attract free agents. And it it didn't work out for them this year. And it is going to be tough to compete with the Liberty and the Aces again because the resources of those ownership groups. 
But the Storm are building their own practice facility, which I think will be a big draw in free agency that's going to come online in 2024. Like it didn't necessarily affect these decisions, especially if, you know, again, Brianna Stewart doesn't know if she's going to play in the WNBA in 2024 because of prioritization. Having a practice facility then might not matter. But the way that it's worked recently, I think, is that the best way to have success in the WNBA is to have talented players that people want to play with. If it's a free agency driven league, that's going to be really important. Now, the one thing I think that might, you know, change your thinking is Jewel Lloyd will be a free agent after this season. She cannot be, they cannot use the core designation on her because she will already have played the two years under a core contract. Did Stewie do that as well? Stewie played two years under a core contract? Stewie was never in her career court because she was Why? restricted and then the Storm chose to use it on Lloyd last offseason. I mean, realistically, like, look, whether you're court or not does not matter. You're going to play where you want in WNBA. What is the, because... Do you get value in return if you're a court player? Yeah, sometimes that's often that's the case in a sign and trade, although we saw that the Connecticut didn't get a didn't get a lot in return for John Quill Jones. She wasn't, you know, she was under contract in the second year of her core deal. Okay. I'm still I'm still a little bit skeptical about the decision to not save the core designation for Stewie this offseason. And maybe that's just not understanding that what that really means or whatever, but like it it doesn't give you any sort of extended access to the players in order to a franchise tag. What do you mean extended access to the player? Or, or like you, you can match a deal or whatever, or you get specific compensation in return if another team signs them. It's not specific compensation in return, but they can't they can't sign with anyone else. It's not like the it's actually in some ways more restricted than the franchise tag. The difference is, you know, the, the Seahawks franchise tag Geno Smith, he isn't making 70 million a year to go play in a different league in Europe during the offseason. That's the leverage. It's just it, going leaving. Yeah, the not playing in the WNBA at all is your leverage. And that's okay. pretty good leverage. I, I guess it makes sense from that perspective. Uh, but it's it's still an interesting thing. Uh, so you think that, that the best way to go about it <clears throat> is to hope for the Geno Smith season? Yeah, is I think so. As good as possible this year, try to maintain, make the playoffs, know that you're probably not a WNBA championship contender, but just be good and then find those couple of extra bits and then land a big uh, top-tier free agent. Now, the Storm also have to fill out the rest of this year's roster. We also got the news this morning that Stephanie Talbot is signing with LA. She was probably the Storm uh, free agent, you know, aside from Ezzy, who is a reserve player, can't negotiate with anyone else either, that I would have considered most likely to return. So that was a little surprising to me. The free agent crop is, you know, thinning pretty quickly. And now that Stewie has reached a decision. I think a lot of teams that were waiting on that, you know, some moves will start coming as a result. Uh, you know, they got to, I mean, it could be eight new players this season. So they're going to have to get busy in terms of adding to the roster. Who who are some free agents who are on the market next year and the year after that? I don't know if I've looked that far ahead. I mean, also many of these players might sign one-year contracts. Okay. So. And, and come back on the market again. But I, I would say, so this year, most of the remaining top free agents besides Courtney Vandersloot, probably just going to re-sign with their own teams. You've got Neko, Gwomake, Brittany Griner, Diana, who, you know, has been very clear about saying she intends to play for the Mercury in the WNBA in 23, Diana Taurasi, 
those players aren't probably changing teams. Uh, the the best player left that I think has a possibility of changing teams would be Emma Mieseman of the Sky, who you know is probably in that similar ten to fifteen range in the WNBA. One question on the Liberty: Let's say that they do sign Courtney Vandersloot. This is the best New York basketball team since. <laughs> I mean, at least the '94 Knicks. I think that's how far back we're going as far as New York basketball goes. I mean, the Liberty had some teams that made the finals as well, but they were going up against you know either the Comets during their dynasty or the the Sparks during their three in a row. Well, yeah, I mean, this might they might not win the championship and still be the best New York basketball team since Correct. 1994. Uh, well, they they probably they could be better than 1994. That wasn't exactly a banner year for the NBA. The best team in the league wasn't in the finals. So you're talking, we might be going back to the 70s. This is the best New York basketball team. I, I think that is quite possible. Possibly five decades. Yes. Wow. I mean, I I really think you can just, you can kind of see it from Stewie's perspective of everything, right? When you talk about the resources, when the money isn't that different in each place, all of those other things matter a lot more. Correct. And the resources that Joe Tsai and the ownership group of the Liberty have, and the way that they've clearly shown that they're willing to invest in WNBA basketball is it's different than the resources. It's not that the storm ownership doesn't want to, but they're just not able to in that same way. You look at this, you could, you say, I could go back home. I could be on possibly the best team in the league, in the biggest market in the country, in a basketball-deprived market in a lot of different ways. I mean, you got Kevin Durant tweeting about it right now. You know what I mean? Like, Well, that's the, the frustrating thing. The, you know, you wonder long-term how much the Sonics moving ultimately affects all of this. Not that Kevin Durant would still be playing for the Sonics <laughs> yeah, yeah. 15 Sonics years would, later. Yeah. But he would have been on one team his entire career. We can always imagine that. Uh, yeah, that, he, that, he never chose to leave exactly. Seattle. Never was. Kevin Durant chose to leave a lot of other places. He never demanded a trade from the city of Seattle or sign anywhere else. So in the alternate universe, Kevin Durant is Seattle Sonic superstar forever. But obviously there isn't a shared ownership possibility in the in Seattle like there is in New York. And that's one of the just very small side stories here. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Basically, what we're saying is it's David Stern's fault that Brianna Stewart doesn't play for the Storm anymore. <laughs> like, can we end this in the same way that we had the Pete Carroll podcast? Uh, that was our last sad emergency podcast, I think. Uh, I could always get behind that. But but it is interesting that it's it's Nets and Liberty that are together. It's not Liberty and Knicks that are together in that equation. And it seems like those are the two teams that kind of that own New York at the moment, at the very least. Um, and I think a lot of it is because of that ownership group and how different Joe Sai is than somebody like James Dolan uh, and how much people want to be a part of it. So uh, until the WNBA gets to the point where they're actually paying players competitive salaries, I, this is going to keep happening. And maybe the league is happy about it ultimately. But if there isn't a rule in place or an ability for every team to go out and spend a large chunk of money on some players, then what's the difference for Courtney Vandersloot if we're talking about you know, maybe a few tens of thousands of dollars right. to go. Oh, I guess th that being the last question for you, what, how good would the storm be? Let's say that Sloot chooses to come to Seattle. What does that do for the storm team this season? And then long-term, I mean, again, there is no long-term in the WNBA right now, unless it's a young player who does said that they don't want to play overseas there is no beyond 2023 because you don't know with any of these players who play overseas whether they are going to be in the league at all beyond 2023. Do you think the WNBA might cave on these prioritization rules? I mean, I specifically asked the question at the WNBA finals of the league's commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, like, 
you know, does it concern you that you might lose some of your, you know, some of your best players? And she said, kind of basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because this was several months ago, that they understood, you know, the implications of the rule. And, you know, there was no indication that they were reconsidering it whatsoever. In in 2023, how good would a Sloot Jewel Lloyd, you know, as a Magbagor Corn be? I, I think that's got a chance to be the third best team in the league, depending on how okay. things shake out. It's just that the Aces and Liberty look like they're going to be so far ahead of everyone else. Okay. I think that's all my questions about, about the signing. Obviously, it's a strange time to be in the city of Seattle with basketball in general. Uh, and you know, to not have that NBA team to look at. We really have to focus in on the storm and not having Stewie there as somebody who is a pillar of the franchise for many years and having obviously Sue be gone. It is a, it's a radically different situation for sure. And, you know, we'll potentially by the time we record next week, know a lot more about what the storms plan B or plan C is going to be here. So with that, thanks for listening. Thanks.